Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Amara, and this is Black Girl Gone, a true crime podcast. On this episode of Black Girl Gone, we tell the story of Alicia Wiley, a 20-year-old woman from New Haven, Connecticut, who was found dead on May 17, 2013. Alicia, who was a college student, had disappeared a month earlier after leaving campus. The day that she was last seen, she texted a friend to tell her that she was on her way to her room, but Alicia never made it to her friend's room. Four days later, she was reported missing. And after 27 days of searching, Alicia's remains were found in a wooded area. Her boyfriend was arrested the next day and charged with her murder. But before her family could get justice for her, tragedy struck Alicia's family again. This is Alicia's story. If you don't already know, October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and if you listen to this show regularly, then you know that many of the stories of missing and murdered women that I tell involve elements of domestic violence. And although more people are aware of what domestic violence is and how often it takes place, we are still dealing with high rates of domestic violence. During the pandemic, this country saw domestic violence-related murders skyrocket. And although domestic violence can and does affect people from all walks of life, there are certain demographics that are affected at higher rates than others. And both Black and Indigenous women in this country are among them. If you follow the podcast on social media, then you may have seen the video that I posted this week about Kira Hudson, who was murdered in Buffalo, New York. If you don't, Kira was a mother of three who was being abused by her husband, A little over a week ago, she posted a video on Facebook showing her husband viciously beating her up. The video was seven minutes long, and in it, you can see her husband punching and dragging her. Her family said that she had moved into her mom's house with her kids to get away from him. And Kara had also posted on Facebook that she was not getting any help from the Buffalo police after trying to get help on multiple occasions. On Wednesday, October 5th, Kira left her mom's house to take her children to school, and she was planning to go to court to file for custody. Her mom told a local news station that when Kira left her house that day, she was wearing a bulletproof vest. Her mom said that when she asked her why she was wearing the vest, Kira said that she believed that her husband was going to kill her. Shortly after she left, her sister says that Kira's husband rammed her car head-on and then got out with a shotgun and pulled the trigger, hitting and killing Kiara. 
He then got in his car and drove off. All three of her children were in the back of the car. Adam Benfield, Kira's husband, is now wanted for questioning by police. The reward is up to $7,500 for any information leading to his arrest. And at the time I'm recording this episode, he has not been caught. Kira's story has gotten a lot of attention on social media because of the video that she posted and the allegations that she made against the Buffalo Police Department. After Kira was murdered, it was discovered that Adam Benfield had been arrested on domestic violence charges, but he was released the day before he allegedly shot and killed Kira. And now people, including Kira's family, are demanding accountability from the Buffalo Police Department and an explanation about why, after the vicious beating that Kira recorded, he was allowed to be free to allegedly murder her. I, like many people who saw her story and that video, was deeply affected by what happened to Kira. She was begging for help, and she never got it. To know that just a week before her murder, she posted that video, is just heartbreaking. Now, Kira has three children that are without their mother. Their lives have been turned completely upside down, and they witnessed all of it the abuse, and the murder. Her family has established a GoFundMe to raise money for Kara's children. And I'm going to put the link in the episode notes. So if you can, please donate to this family. Kara and her children deserve so much better. And so like I said before, as far as I can tell, as of the recording of this episode, Adam Benfield has not been found. And so... If you have any information about his whereabouts, please contact the Buffalo, New York Police Department. Now, this week's story, the story of Alicia Wiley, is also a story about domestic violence. It shows that you do not have to be married, you don't even have to be living with a partner to be in an abusive relationship. It's also a cautionary tale for both young women and young men about domestic violence. Educating ourselves and younger generations about the signs and patterns of abuse and how to recognize them early can save lives. Alicia's mother, since her murder, has dedicated herself to this very thing, educating young people about domestic violence. Domestic violence has affected her in more ways than one, and despite her pain, she dedicated her life to preventing it from happening to others. Karina Martin gave birth to four children, all girls. Alicia was the third of the four girls. She was born on November 24, 1992, and raised in New Haven, Connecticut, along with her sisters. Her family called her Lily, a nickname given to her by her sister who couldn't say Alicia when she was little. Karina was a single mom, and so raising four children alone had its challenges, but she did everything she could to give her girls a good life. Alicia, her mom said, was a very determined person, even as a child. But she was described as a peacemaker who wore her heart on her sleeve. In high school at Hill House High School in New Haven, Alicia was popular and well-liked, but she was also a good student. For Karina, education was something that she made sure her girls understood the importance of, as young Black women, she knew that the odds were stacked against them. But 
By the time Alicia was entering her senior year of high school, it was clear that she was going to beat those odds. After high school, she planned to go to college, and she ended up receiving a full scholarship to Eastern Connecticut State University. By all accounts, Alicia was a normal, well-adjusted teenager who never gave her mom too much to worry about. She was smart and ambitious, and she was close to her family. Now, during her senior year, as Alicia got ready for prom and graduation, she also began dating someone, a man by the name of Jermaine Richards. Now, it's not clear how the two met, but it appears Alicia didn't tell her mom about the relationship right away. And that was probably because Jermaine was a lot older than her. 10 years older, to be exact. Now, at the time, Alicia was only 17, but she would be turning 18 soon. And when she told her mom about Jermaine, she told her that he was older, just not how much older. But even still, her mom, of course, had reservations about her daughter dating a man that was older than her. But she also knew that Alicia was getting ready to move out and go to college, and she was about to be 18. And so her opinion wasn't really going to matter that much anymore. And as long as Alicia was still going to school, well, that was really Karina's top concern. Now, in the fall of 2011, Alicia moved on to campus at Eastern Connecticut State University and began her college career. She majored in psychology with a minor in biology. According to her family, Alicia adjusted well to college life and campus life. She liked the independence that came with not living at home, and even though she had a full social life, she still made sure that school was the focus. Now, life had changed a lot for Alicia since graduating from high school, but she and Jermaine continued to date. And from the outside looking in, things between them seemed like they were normal, especially in the beginning. But Alicia also didn't talk much about Jermaine to her friends at school. But by the time she finished her freshman year, they had been together for about two years. However, as Alicia began her sophomore year at Eastern Connecticut, she felt herself growing out of her relationship with Jermaine. And despite appearances, there were issues in the relationship, and it seemed like Alicia was finally tired of the back and forth, and she really wanted to date other people. By the spring of 2013, Alicia was only 20, but Jermaine was 30, and that was a significant age gap. It was obvious that their lives were not really headed in the same direction, and Alicia wanted to be free from her relationship. She began confiding in her friends that she was ready to end her relationship with Jermaine, she wanted to meet new people and date other guys. I mean, after three years of a long relationship, she just wanted to be a normal 20-year-old. She wanted to enjoy her life. But before Alicia could finish her sophomore year, she vanished and everything changed. On Saturday, April 20th, 2013, Alicia was on campus on what started off as a seemingly normal day. but. At around 11 p.m., a friend of Alicia's, who was also a student at Eastern Connecticut, Sade, said that Alicia sent her a text saying that her relationship with Jermaine was over. 
and that she was coming over to her room because she needed a drink. Now, Sade said normally when Alicia would text her and say that she was coming over, she came. So she waited and waited, but Alicia never showed up. Sade said that she called her phone twice, but she didn't pick up. Now, on a recent episode of The Oxygen Show, Final Moments, which featured Alicia's story, Sade said that when she didn't pick up her phone, she didn't immediately worry. I mean, even though Alicia did not normally text and say she was coming and then not show up, Sade assumed that maybe she had just changed her mind, and so she didn't really think much about it. She figured that she would just see her on Monday because Alicia wouldn't miss her classes. But when Monday came, Alicia didn't show up for class. And she still was not answering her phone. Sade said that when she realized that Alicia wasn't in her room and that she hadn't been to class, she asked a professor of theirs if they had seen Alicia, but he said that he had not seen her either. And he asked Sade if it was normal for Alicia to just disappear like that. And of course she said no, because it wasn't normal. Alicia always showed up for class. So the next day, Tuesday, Sade went to campus police to report that Alicia was missing and had not shown up for class. Now, campus security received the report about Alicia not showing up for class. They began to ask around, and they learned that she had not shown up for any of her classes and that no one had seen her since Saturday. Now, campus security on Wednesday then contacted the state police to ask them for assistance in investigating what happened to Alicia. When the state police arrived on campus, they began searching the campus, and they spoke to friends and classmates of Alicia's, and they also spoke to her professors. And they found out what Sade had already found out, that no one had seen or heard from Alicia in four days. For the four days that Alicia had been missing, Karina, her mom, had no idea. But when police contacted her to tell her what was going on, she was shocked. She thought that her daughter was at school getting ready for finals. Now the police were telling her that she has been missing for four days. In complete disbelief, Karina called her youngest daughter, Ori, and asked her when was the last time that she spoke to Alicia. Ori said that it had been about a week since she had last spoken to her sister. And so after speaking to her mom, Ori first called Jermaine to ask him if he knew where Alicia was. But she said that when she called, Jermaine didn't answer the phone. And so she asked their older sister, Niqua, to call. And this time, Jermaine did answer the phone. And when Niqua told him about what was going on and that Alicia had been reported missing, he said that he hadn't talked to her. And at the time, her family had no idea that Jermaine was the last person to see Alicia alive. All they knew was that she was missing. 27 days later, everyone's worst nightmare would come true. Bomba's mission is simple. 
make the most comfortable clothes ever, and match every item sold with an equal item donated. So when you buy Bombas, you're also giving to someone in need. Bombas designed their socks, shirts, and underwear to be the clothes you can't wait to put on every day. Everything they make is soft, seamless, tagless, and has a cozy feel. There's a pair of Bombas socks for everything you do. They come in tons of options, like comfy performance style made with sweat wickering yarns, which means your feet stay cool while the rest of you works up a sweat. Bombas no-show socks are designed for comfort while being specifically engineered to never fall down. So let your ankles be free to soak up the sunlight. Bombas t-shirts are made with thoughtful design features like invisible seams, soft fabrics, and the perfect weight, so they hang just right. Bombas underwear is so breathable and it fits so well, it feels like you're not wearing anything at all, in a good way. And did you know that socks, underwear, and t-shirts are the three most requested clothing items at homeless shelters? That's why Bombas donates one for every item you buy. So far, Bombas customers like you have helped donate over 50 million items of essential clothing. Go to bombas.com slash girlgone and use code girlgone for 20% off your first purchase. That's B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash girlgone and use code girlgone at checkout. Bombas.com slash girlgone. Code girlgone. When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. On April 20th, 2013, Alicia Wiley disappeared from the college campus where she was a student. When campus security learned that she had failed to show up for classes and no one had seen her, they contacted the state police who initiated an investigation. At first, it seemed like Alicia had disappeared without a trace, but as they began to investigate her last movements, they started to ask whether the last person to have seen her was responsible for her disappearance. After Alicia was reported missing and her mom was notified, the state police began working with the campus police to try and figure out what had happened to her and where she went on the day that she was last seen. Early on, investigators got lucky when they were able to get surveillance footage from inside and outside the dorm where Alicia lived. The footage showed her inside the dorm lobby on Saturday morning, and footage from outside showed her leaving out of the front door. 
She's then seen walking towards the parking lot where she gets into a black Nissan Altima with tinted windows. The footage was extremely helpful because it gave investigators an exact timeline of when Alicia had left campus, and it also showed how she left. But it didn't show who she left with. Now, after speaking to Sade and Alicia's family, however, they find out that Alicia had been in contact with Jermaine that day. And so, after taking a deeper look, they discover that the car that Alicia is seen leaving in is her boyfriend Jermaine's car. Now, once they find out that information, they went to speak with Jermaine to see if he knew where Alicia was or if he had any information that could help them find her. But when they spoke to Jermaine, he said that he didn't know where Alicia was. He did admit to picking her up from campus that day. He said that they drove to his mom's house, which was an hour and a half away in Bridgeport, Connecticut. He said that they spent the day there doing nothing, and then he said they left Bridgeport and drove back to campus. But instead of dropping her off on campus like he usually did, he told investigators that he dropped her off at a Dairy Queen at around 11 p.m. Now, the Dairy Queen is a few blocks from the school. And when investigators asked Jermaine why he dropped her off there and not on campus, he said that they had gotten into an argument and that Alicia wanted to get out of the car, and so he let her off there. Now, to investigators, his story did seem strange, but they didn't have a reason at that time not to believe his account of that day. In the days after her disappearance, Alicia's family and investigators on the case were becoming more desperate to find her. After speaking to Jermaine, police did search his vehicle, but they didn't find anything useful. And so they then decided to focus on Alicia's cell phone data and discovered that Sade was the last person that she texted that night. They also found out that she had been texting an ex-boyfriend that afternoon and that the two were making plans to see each other. Now, when detectives went to go speak to him, however, he said that he hadn't spoken to Alicia since those messages. And he had a solid alibi for the day and time that Alicia was last seen. So he was ruled out as a suspect. Now, Alicia's last message, coupled with the text to the ex, made the detectives want to take a deeper look into her relationship with Jermaine. But when they asked her friends about her relationship with Jermaine, none of them really knew anything about him, which was surprising to the detectives. Her sister, however, did know that Alicia had a rocky relationship with Jermaine and that on at least one occasion, Jermaine had been violent. Her sister told police about an incident in which Jermaine had tried to strangle Alicia. That was a month before she disappeared. Now, after learning about the alleged abuse, investigators decided to focus in on the route that Jermaine took after picking Alicia up. Data from cell phone towers helped them establish his movements that day, but the route was 75 miles long, and so it was going to take them a while to search that area. They also asked Jermaine to come back into the station to answer more questions, but he refused to speak to police again. In the meantime, 
Alicia's family and friends were doing everything that they could to find her and to bring awareness to the fact that she was missing. Local media began covering Alicia's disappearance pretty much right away, and the news of her disappearance was featured everywhere. The community came out to help in searches and with passing out flyers. People who had never met Alicia or her family wanted to help. Everyone wanted to find Alicia, and they were all hoping that she would be found safe. The investigators on this case, using Jermaine's cell phone data, had started searching at the beginning of his route. They brought out forensic search teams and cadaver dogs to search through the wooded areas along the road. Now, Jermaine did not have a criminal record, but investigators did think that the story he told them didn't make very much sense. There was the possibility that someone had kidnapped Alicia after he dropped her off at the Dairy Queen, but until they could completely eliminate him, he was their main person of interest. On May 17th, 2013, 27 days after Alicia was last seen, a canine unit that was searching for Alicia called the lead detective on the case to report that human remains had been found in the woods in Bridgeport. But it wasn't a body that had been found. It was decomposing body parts, legs and arms to be exact. It was a gruesome discovery, but there was no way to identify the remains, and the rest of the victim's body were not found. When the media found out about the discovery of the remains, they reported the information, but police needed to wait for DNA testing before they could confirm the identity of the victim. When Alicia's family found out about the discovery, they were praying that the remains did not belong to Alicia. But the day after the remains were found, their worst nightmares were confirmed. It was Alicia. She was dead. Someone had murdered her and then dismembered her before throwing her away. The wooded area where Alicia's remains were found was five minutes from Jermaine's mom's house. That, together with the evidence investigators obtained from Jermaine's cell phone data, gave them enough probable cause to secure an arrest warrant. And on May 18th, 2013, Jermaine turned himself in. A year and a half later, in February 2014, Jermaine's trial began. The prosecution presented a case that laid out a pattern of abuse on Jermaine's behalf and concluded that he had killed Alicia because she wanted to break up with him. They presented evidence of dating sites with aliases that Jermaine used and witnesses testified to his controlling, aggressive behavior towards Alicia. The defense, however, said that there was no evidence linking their client to the murder and that the prosecution had a completely circumstantial case. The trial lasted 29 days, and each day, Alicia's family and friends came to the trial and set through the heartbreaking details about her murder. But on March 14, 2014, the judge made an announcement that the jury was deadlocked and they couldn't reach a decision. Alicia's family was devastated. They were hoping that they would get justice after this trial was over. 
It was hard to sit there every day, and for them to end up with a hung jury was almost too much to take. Karina admitted that after the trial, she had given up hope, but they were determined to get justice, and so was the prosecutor. And while they waited for Jermaine's second trial to begin, Alicia's mom and sister began channeling their pain into educating people, especially young people, about domestic violence. In March 2014, Jermaine Richards is once again put on trial for Alicia's murder. Her family was convinced that after the prosecution tried this case for the second time, that this time for sure they would get a conviction. But 23 days after the second trial began, another jury deadlocked and a second mistrial was declared. Karina said that the second mistrial broke her even more than the first. In an interview with ID Channel for their show Impact of Murder, Karina said that she thought that after the second mistrial that the prosecution would just let the case go. But the prosecutor was determined, and he told Karina that they were going to go for a third trial. While they waited for the third trial to begin, once again, this family would find themselves with another heartbreaking tragedy. Alicia's oldest sister, Shakaniqua Niqua Brody, had met a man named Anthony Rutherford online in early 2017. The relationship moved pretty fast, and within months of dating, Niqua and Anthony were living together with Niqua's children. But her family started to see a change in her after she met Anthony. In just a few short months, Nico's life had taken a turn in a direction that worried her family. Ori said in her interview for Impact of Murder that Nico had been a CNA, something that she loved, but after meeting Anthony, she stopped working as a CNA and started working at a gas station. She also started to become distant from her family. On August 18th, 2017, three weeks before Jermaine's third murder trial was set to begin, Karina received a call from a detective asking if she knew a Shakaniqua Brody. He wouldn't tell her why he was calling, but he asked Karina, who was at the doctor's at the time, to meet him at her house so that he could speak with her in person. Karina went home, and an hour and a half later, detectives arrived to tell her that her oldest daughter, 29-year-old Shakaniqua Brody, was dead. She had been shot in the head, and her live-in boyfriend, Anthony, was responsible. It seems almost impossible that it could be happening to this family again. Karina now had two daughters who were dead murdered at the hands of men who they had been in relationships with. But it wasn't just two murders. It was three. After learning Anthony had shot and killed Niqua, they found out that he also shot and killed her nine-year-old daughter, Majea. After the murder, Anthony was arrested sitting in Nikwa's car, and inside they found the gun that he used to murder her and her daughter. After only four months of dating, Anthony had turned into Nikwa's worst nightmare. 
Karina was numb. The pain this family must have felt is truly unimaginable. But in the midst of their latest grief, they still had to get through the third murder trial. In September 2017, the third trial began. And this time, a jury found Jermaine Richards guilty of murdering Alicia. And in March 2018, he was sentenced to 60 years in jail. He has tried to appeal the case, but all of his appeals have been denied. And recently, after agreeing to hear his case, the Supreme Court upheld his conviction. The same year that Jermaine was sentenced, Anthony Rutherford pled guilty to murdering Niqua and Maijaya. He was sentenced to 80 years. Although Karina and her family were grateful that the men responsible for taking their loved ones from them were being held accountable, it didn't really mean much because for Karina, two of her children and her granddaughter were all gone. Domestic violence destroyed this family. Alicia knew her killer for three years, Niqua for four months. There are really no words to describe what happened to them, and having their killers behind bars doesn't change what happened. Like I said before, Karina has dedicated her life to helping others. Before her death, Nico had helped her mom to start the Moo Foundation to help prevent domestic violence. And after Anthony was arrested, it was discovered that he had been convicted two other times for domestic violence. And so, Karina began petitioning for the creation of a violent offenders registry. When you watch her interviews, you can feel Karina's pain. I'm not sure how she finds the strength to be an activist and tell her daughter's stories, but I hope that she has been able to find some peace, somehow. May Alicia Wiley, Chakaniqua Brody, and Kiara Hudson rest in peace. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode. Make sure you subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode. It also helps our show grow. As always, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, and Facebook. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.